From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2019 Third Coast Festival broadcast. Third Coast is a nonprofit arts organization in Chicago dedicated to celebrating great audio stories. All year long, we scour the globe for the best work we can find. Then we share it in a variety of ways, via radio and podcast, on the internet, at live listening events, and we also host an international competition to honor all the wonderful stories our medium has to offer. This year, we received nearly 500 entries from 22 different countries, including Argentina, New Zealand, Russia, Slovenia, and Finland. Then it was up to the judges, themselves highly accomplished radio makers, to do the hard job of choosing the winners. In the end, 11 documentaries won top honors. These are the stories that we are thrilled to present to you on Best of the Best. This hour, we're listening to two winning pieces from the 2019 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. They were recently crowned at our awards ceremony in Chicago, hosted by Nigel Poor and Erlon Woods of the podcast Ear Hustle. It is a real honor to be here in a room full of so many dedicated and talented creators and makers. And we learned a ton from listening to the award winners and any time that you can see something entirely in your head, like just from listening, yeah. soundscape, the voices, the scenes, and all the different things that audio storytelling can do, yeah. that's powerful. We begin with our 2019 Best New Artist Award. This honor recognizes the work of a producer who, despite being in the field two years or less, has an original voice and a great sense of story someone from whom we want to hear more. This year's award goes to producer Mara Laser for Mardi Gras is a State of Mind. Our judges said that this piece takes listeners on a vivid and captivating journey that brings an intimate inner conflict to life through superb writing and transportive tape. Mara's execution of this piece demonstrates deep understanding and commitment to the craft. As Mara describes it, this is a story about the idea of shape-shifting with a friend via testosterone. They pose the question, what does it mean to be a lesbian separatist who might actually be a man? Here is Mardi Gras is a State of Mind. Sometimes when it's springtime in New Orleans, I walk in a roving pack. With my proverbial girls, I'm usually covered in someone else's glitter and rhinestones, yarn, face paint, with Jameson tucked in my pants. Too many small revolutionary-minded parades around me to count. But this year, I asked my friends to send me audio of Mardi Gras. I live in New Orleans and wanted to escape my little world down there, remind myself life does exist outside the city. So I booked tickets to New York. One of my best friends moved there. This friend and I had top surgery together. We drove to Florida to have the same chest masculinization surgery within a few days of each other. 
It took years of late night talks with radical dykes and queers to get to that moment. I was terrified and thrilled about treating my milk ducks like medical waste. A few trans men I know were happy with their chests from this doctor in Miami. It's the only surgery he does, and it's popular. He flattens chests five times a day, three days a week. The night before my nip tuck, though, I actually felt like a pretty terrible misogynist. Such a failed feminist, I was cutting up my own female body. But I have to remind myself that living as default feminine is not helping other women. Ruminating in self-torture and loathing is not an inspiring feminist strategy. It is a strange feeling to desire masculinity in 2019. Who wants to be a man? Ugh. I feel like even if I wanted to fully transition to be a man, it's not possible. I could be a man who was raised as a girl, survived middle school because of Riot Girl, a man who almost everyone reads as a huge lesbian. And what a privilege. Right now, I'm a faggy lesbian separatist visiting New York City. I'm reluctant to say I'm non-binary. It doesn't feel like a category that holds space. Edgeless, like leftovers, it doesn't exist without referencing what it isn't. Saying it out loud feels like I'm just saying, sorry, not that one, thanks. I get lost in my head breaking down what genderqueer even means and wondering who doesn't fit that category. I want to feel full and desirable. My desire is formed through refractions off of things and ideas. I prefer this phrasing to, I constantly compare myself to everyone around me. During my visit to New York, my friend was scheduled to get androgel, testosterone cream, a gift from the gay gods. I've debated taking testosterone shots before and put it off, but androgel isn't as strong as the shots. You can actually spread testosterone through skin contact after applying. I'm a sucker for a ritual bonding moment. As a kid in the 90s, when I would ask for the boys' toy in the McDonald's drive-thru, I'd watch my mom's worrying eyes lingering on me in the rearview mirror. When I told her I wish I was a boy, she just stared and said, why? Maybe her gut response was feeling rejected, like I was rejecting her as a woman, as a role model. Fat Tuesday is a day for ritually drug-induced shape-shifting. In New Orleans, this is the culmination day for Catholic feasting, for public masking, costuming, nudity, young and old bodies are on full display. I won't even call it gender-bending because it's beyond the category of gender. It's a riot bursting with sounds and deep, bright, shiny colors. Historic struggles over who is allowed to parade, who owns the streets, happens live on TV simultaneously to the news coverage of drag competitions. Strike didn't stop the annual drag contest in the quarter. This year, the usual feather boas and frills gave way partially to the macho man leather look with many sporting construction hats. 
spectators and participants alike. They well, they damn burning trees what they did for block. On this day, the gift of androgel was supposed to be placed in our hands. If you are currently out of work due to health related issues and between the ages of fifty and sixty four, you may qualify for dis Thank you for completing the survey. Your entry is now complete. Goodbye. Oh my god. This is the number they have listed on their website. But, as the patriarchal, bureaucratic, garbage world that we live in would have it, there was a weird insurance issue. Despite having multiple credit cards, we couldn't get the hormones. So our afternoon tea party was put on hold. But I wondered, if we had to be the androgel we wanted to see in the world, what does that mean exactly? We had the entire city of New York in burning hearts. I couldn't be satisfied with just a slice this afternoon, no matter how cheap and delicious. We decided to have a ceremony to make us really feel like those small, revolutionary-minded parades were a state of mind. We bought a lottery ticket. I made a list of types of men I want to be, types of men I want to burn. I shared screenshots from the internet. We tried to peel back the doling sensors and talk fast and loud and publicly about things we want to do, how we want to be in the world. We tried to burn our lists, but it took a while. It was windy and literally freezing. This Judith Butler quote from Examined Life started vibrating through my head. And I remembered that physical possibilities can be a matter of reframing. What can a body do? We usually ask, you know, what is a body or what is the ideal form of a body or... Uh, but what can a body do is is a different question. It's it, it's not like there's an, you know, what a body should look like. It's exactly not that question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or what a body when you, the plural you, stood there with your coat unzipped and laughed, remembering my high by association comment, my attempt to explain some feeling of a memory I had of you, and you clapped and spread your arms in motion for me, come here, and that no, my subconscious wasn't too messy. You put your gloveless hand on my chest in my mostly zipped up jacket and said, ugh, it's warm in here. I felt my head spin. I felt trans. After the ceremony, we went to Walter's. With our giant happy hour martinis, we read excerpts of Andrea Longchu's article on liking women. She says, um... I'm trying to tell you something that few of us dare to talk about, especially in public, especially when we are trying to feel political. Can you hear me? Yeah, I got it. Okay. I got it. I can hear you. As if the cure for dysphoria were wokeness. How can you want to be something you already are? Desire implies deficiency. Want implies want. To admit that what makes women like me transsexual is not identity but desire is to admit just how much of transition takes place in the waiting rooms of wanting things. Reading this out loud, my eyes turned to flames, ignited by, yet resigned to, trans desire. The idea of men becoming women thrills the lesbian history archivist in me even though physically I'm moving in a different direction. I feel strangely comforted thinking desire implies deficiency. There's a relief in acknowledging what I don't have in order to more clearly see what I do have. Desire. 
I can't copy and paste generic maleness onto my body, and why would I want to? Flirting with the idea of rubbing so-called male hormones all over my body, I wonder, how thoroughly high do I have to be in order to continue believing I can move forward on this twirling trans journey without taking testosterone? Call this the romance of disappointment. You want something. You have found an object that will give you what you want. Maybe you were trying to show me how to be sad and silly and proud. Come on. Just a tiny microphone. No! Or maybe that was me doing that. Okay, do it once yourself and then once there. <laughs> once yourself. <laughs> we'll do, do a couple takes. Like, Are you ready for your blessing? Are you ready for your miracle? Are you ready for your blessing? I extended my trip in New York, but the testosterone never arrived. This may seem like a missed opportunity, and sure, yeah, undoubtedly, but it's not surprising. I don't feel sad, I feel lucky. The possibilities swirling around my head feel otherworldly. I'm fantasizing about writing love letters to my friends, my Irish Catholic mom, her sisters, you. I want to talk to everyone about the possibilities of their faggy, lesbian, separatist genders. I want to have ceremonies where we take our shirts off and rub androgel across each other's chests. Maybe my mom's is an empowering cleansing ritual, a quick release from the caretaking. Maybe mine is kind of like a small orgy. Imagining the feeling of a room of transsexuals lathering themselves in wishes. A room full of chests with scars that say, something happened here, and I want more of it. That was Mardi Gras is a State of Mind, produced by Mara Laser, with editorial support from the collective Radio Rejects, Ari Mejia, N.K., and Phoebe Unter. Here's Mara on stage at the 2019 awards ceremony in Chicago. Making this story was hard. It's hard to make stories about our lives that also affect other living people. Maybe when those people's perspectives don't exactly line up with ours. It's hard to find language to describe the chaos of being a living person. To be honest about our whole selves instead of falling into predetermined scripts. Making this story felt risky, pushing comfort levels of my family, wondering if my coworkers would hear it. But that feels like work radio makers with privilege should do. I think it's important to show our mistakes and vulnerabilities. It feels like one way to combat these ridiculous and oversimplified fascist stories that dominate this moment. I like my voice best in the company of others. I love imagining how queer people express themselves while dancing without being able to touch. This is how I want to feel about making political radio art. Like friends and I are dancing hard with our voices. I want the chaotic structure, the pleasure, the pain. I want to feel the possibilities. I want our voices to dance together. I'm going to put my middle finger in the air, and when I do that, I want you to reply. So I want you to to think about what constraints you're feeling. What is your fiery retort to your constraints? Mara Laser. Producer of Mardi Gras is a State of Mind. 
Okay, thank you so much. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2019 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to the winners of our annual documentary competition, made possible with generous support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation. Here are all of this year's winners, along with a treasure trove of other great stories from around the world, anytime, at thirdcoastfestival.org and on our podcast, ReSound. Coming up after the break, a well-known poet explores the concept of home when he revisits his past in the 2019 Best Documentary Gold Award winner, plus an interview with producer Sarah Cavedo. Stay with us. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, we're listening to two of the winners of our annual documentary competition. When Javier Zamora came to the United States to reunite with his parents, he was only nine years old. After a harrowing journey with a coyote, he made his way to Arizona and eventually to his family. He became very successful. He had fellowships at Harvard and Stanford, among other places, and was a published author and poet. However, when his temporary protected status was threatened by the Trump administration, he had no choice but to return to El Salvador for the first time in 20 years. He documented his trip back in the 2019 Third Coast Gold Award-winning story, The Return, produced by Sarah Cavedo. I think this is my seventh birthday, and this is the last birthday that I've celebrated. For the eighth and ninth birthdays, I didn't celebrate it. My parents were saving for me to come here. This is right in our backyard underneath, like the avocado trees. And there's a party outside. (laughs) Macarena is playing in the back. And those are my friends. That's my cousin. And out of all those boys, all of them have left. And they're all in the United States. Oh, it's my grandpa. He's young. He's fatter. <laughs> he still looks strong and very and very imposing. He's scary. She's so lively. My grandma's like, even like her hand motions and everything, she's very lively. She's like saying thank you. And the weird part is that she's talking to my mom and my dad in the United States and she's like, I hope that this party met your expectations. Like you gave us money to provide for your kid and and we hope that you met your like thing that you had imagined in your head. She was like my mom. The coyote that brought me here, he would visit, I think almost twice a year to see how old I was. He was gauging to see if I could make the trip. So we started this relationship. Last time I saw him, he said, next time 
you just have to be ready. And I had, I had my bags just waiting. I knew that I was going to leave. I just didn't know when. And I don't remember what day it was, but then my grandpa woke me up and he's like, you have to go shower now. My aunt and my grandma made breakfast and they were crying. My grandpa and I walked out the door and it was dawn and the dogs were barking and the sun hadn't broken through yet. So it was like this bluish tint all over. And I just walked out onto the road and took a left all the way to the pier, which is where the buses stop. And so in that, that was the last time that I walked through my entire town. My grandpa left me in Guatemala. And we had stayed there for 15 days, but my grandpa couldn't go anymore. So I remember him walking us to the bus, and I was the last one to get on. And I was saying goodbye to my grandpa. And he was wearing a white polo shirt, black shoes and black belt and blue jeans. And he was in the middle of the road. And he was just waving. When I left, I wasn't thinking about the time apart from them. I was mostly happy that I was en route to be reunited with my parents. It wasn't until much later that I began to understand that I wasn't going to see my grandparents again. It's June 10th. I'm alone at home. It's 19 years today. I haven't packed. I leave tomorrow. Yesterday, I babysat a kid, a four-year-old with Brittany. At the end, he chose four books for me to read to him. And one of them was Dr. Seuss, All the Places You Will Go. And after Brittany read it to him, he said that it made him feel better. And he was hugging me. And now I'm home. I woke up with Brittany, and I feel good about leaving. And I don't know when that changed because I've been scared. And there's something about this date that is full circle. Okay. On June 10th, the day before I left to El Salvador, I had dinner with my mom and my aunts. We just started talking, you know, about the trip. And my little cousin, Toñito, really surprised me. You are nine. And uh, how do you think you would feel if you were going? I feel happy. Like right now, I feel happy for you yeah. because you're going there and seeing my grandma and my grandpa. Mm -hmm. And I wish you luck. Any advice? Mm -hmm. If you were to go to a place that you've never been to, what, what would you bring? Um, I want to bring my parents. Your parents? Yeah, mm. so that they could go with me also. <laughs> I think that is um, just natural feeling of a little kid, the same age as me when I came here, that all you want is your parents and to be with them and bring them everywhere. I think just that feeling, I want to bring my parents, and it always makes me cry because that's what I wanted. 
when I immigrated by myself. All I wanted to be was to be with my parents. I was thinking about this from San Francisco to Houston. In Houston, I think it really began to kick in. By then, I was like, okay, am I going to come back? Am I going to return to this? How am I going to return from this? I was thinking about seeing my grandparents for the first time in 19 years. After I got here, my grandparents and I mostly communicated over the phone. Like, how are you doing? How is El Salvador? How is the United States? How's work? How's the weather? Okay, I love you, bye. I feel like they hide a lot of things from us and also we hide a lot of things from them. When I land and I go through the checkpoint and I get a whiff of the humidity and I get to the road, my grandpa's waiting there. I think he's wearing white again. He's wearing a white polo. Maybe he always wears white polos, I don't know. But at crucial moments, he always wears the same outfit. Before I was five, he was rarely in the picture because he was working. But when he was in the picture, he was drunk. The one memory that I remember was him coming in through the door, the back door, pounding it. He was drunk and on something else. And I was four. And he burst through and he starts arguing and throwing, he was throwing stuff and like cursing my grandma out. That happened multiple times. He still has a huge gut, but he's frail. The meat has been taken away from him, and with it, like, the dynamic has changed. I'm less scared, and now I'm bigger. The moment I get in the car, I start commenting on what I remember, like, automatically, like, on cue. And I try to remember the way home, First thing I noticed, there's now a solar panel field. And then we keep on driving, and the sugarcane fields are still there. But now we have like a little thing that says, uh, Bienvenidos a La Herradura. Welcome to La Herradura. Right near the cemetery. I remember the cemetery being this huge thing. And the cemetery was like a block big. And in my head, it, it felt like half a mile. And so we take a right of a new road that they've just built with new houses, and I'm commenting on it. And then I don't even recognize the clinic that I lived in front of. So he parks, the car parks, and my grandpa starts to get out. And I'm like, what, are we here? I didn't remember. My grandma opens the door. She's in her nightgown, and she looks around to see if anybody's looking. And she doesn't get out of the house. She waits for me to get in. 
and she is way different than what I remembered. My grandma was this joyful woman who would always be dressed to the nines, who would do her makeup, who would take care of her hair. She's not that person anymore. She's seeing a shadow of who she was. She's frail. Her arms are so skinny. There's like dreads in the back of her hair. She doesn't care for her hair anymore. And I hugged her and she didn't hug me fully. She put one of her hands in between her chest and mine. I'm gonna protect my chest where my heart is. And that's what she did. Whenever I thought of seeing my grandparents, I imagined this big dramatic moment where I would run up to them and hug them crying. My grandma crying, hugging me. I imagined staying up, talking with them. I wanted to take them out on a walk to the market or to the pier. That's what I wanted most. There's still pictures, one of my mom, one of my dad, one of my aunts, and one of me. And that's the first thing you see. And the fridge is new, but it's still in the same place that it used to be. The TV is newer, but it's still in the same place that it used to be. Oh, the roof changed. The roof used to be terracotta roof, and now it's, uh, there's like steel that you can hear when, it's, when it rains, keeps you up. There are geckos now. There's like an infestation that like squeak like birds that keep you up as well. I still showered outside. So everything hadn't changed that much. As part of the visa appointment, I had to go to this doctor in the capital and do a lot of tests. And once that was approved, I could go to the embassy. Today I went to the doctor's appointment. And once up there, they asked why I was getting the visa and I explained that I have a book. With the moment I mentioned Stanford, Harvard, he treated me differently. And then this is like an hour later, the doctor actually saw me and the first thing he says, you know, they already told me about you. I'm really proud of you. And I thought it was gonna go fine. And then he begins asking me about drugs. And then he's told me to be honest. So I don't know if I did the right thing or not. And then I told him that I had tried uh, marijuana before. And had I been stopped or arrested and I said no, and under his breath, he told me, he said, you guys always f yourself up in Spanish. And then he kept on pressing me, had I tried other drugs, had I tried marijuana more than once, et cetera, et cetera. I really hope that that doesn't hurt my chances. And I was just being honest. And I guess that's what's stupid. And we'll see what happens. But I'm really, I feel down. I really hope that I can go back to the United States. I really hope that I didn't f up today.
I couldn't leave the house. So it was like when I was a little kid again. But this time, it was kind of my grandparents telling me not to leave the house, but it's also myself. I didn't feel safe leaving the house. And I was afraid to leave because I'm a stranger there and nobody would really know me. So I was scared that I would be misidentified as a potential outsider gangster. And just that made me feel unwelcomed. En los departamentos allá en las universidades ya ya han ya me han enseñado el libro a otros bichos y han escrito sobre los poemas y muchos So I asked my grandparents how do they feel that they are part of my poetry and that other people are reading these poems and that other people in like in colleges and universities are reading them Como que les hace sentir and my grandma says that she's happy and my grandpa says that he's proud and that when people ask how I'm doing they say, oh well he's he's very titulado <laughs> that I'm like studied learned so I've read my grandma poems in Spanish but not the ones about domestic violence we didn't suffer the war, but my grandpa brought the war into the domestic sphere. We all still love him. You know, there's like a bad figure and who is still my grandpa and it's still my, my mom's dad. But silence is definitely still a big part of our relationship. Um, today we went to Zagatecoluca, which is in the news and everywhere. It's one of the most dangerous places because of the gangs here in this department. And it was so interesting to go with my grandpa to pick up his remittances. And the bank was full. Today, my grandma was supposed to go with us, but she didn't. She's still stuck in her house. I feel kind of bad that I didn't, I wasn't able to get her out, but I'm going to try again. I was asking why, Grandma, and she didn't say anything. It had been three, four years since my grandma has left the house. So I really hoped that I was going to be the one, you know, her nieto, the one that she raised like a son that I was going to be the one to finally get her out. And maybe you're going to go back to who you were. I think her isolation has a lot to do with cultural expectations. She had three daughters, you know, and a grandson who was like a son to her. And we all left. You know, culturally, at least one of us is supposed to stay there and help her out. And so I think all of that has taken a physical and emotional toll on her. My grandpa lives at the opposite end of the house. It's like its own, he has his own kitchen, he has his own room. In the morning, he goes and wakes my grandma up and asks her what she wants for breakfast. And then he takes a moto taxi to El Mercado. He brings back the stuff. He goes back and he retreats into his kitchen. After that, 
he reads the paper and then he goes out into the field. He's constantly cutting the grass. That's like his thing. And then he eats again and then he goes back to the fields to burn leaves and trash. And then he retreats and watches novelas and has dinner and then goes to sleep. He does it every single day. My grandma's day is literally at the opposite end of the house. My grandpa goes out and brings my grandma food, so she has to wait for that. She watches TV or listens to the radio. Then she sleeps, and then she watches a novela at night. And it's all in that little room. So I had hurt my knee, so I couldn't run. I had graduated physical therapy the week before I leave to El Salvador. I started this like jog to run regimen in like my backyard, learning to run again. And so every day I would watch a soccer game. This is during the World Cup. I would watch a soccer game and in between game one and game two, I would put my shoes on and go to the backyard and create my own little track. In front of the house, through in between the well and the outhouse, take a left through the orange tree all the way up to the cornfields and round around the sapote tree all the way back. Take a ride at the coconut and then go along the fence and then back to the front of the house. That was my running track. And I think that's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to run away from there. Slowly, every day that passed, I realized that I did not belong there and I began to get exasperated. I did not feel free. I was there like four weeks, five people were killed during the time that I was there. And once, like I heard the gunshots. And in the morning, if I didn't hear the gunshots at night, I would hear the bells ring and that, and my cousins and everybody knows that if, if they ring in the morning, that means there's a mass and somebody was shot and the news travels fast. All those things, made me feel unsafe and that this was not where I belonged anymore. Yesterday I was freaking out. Yesterday was June 30th, two days before my appointment. I felt like I wanted to get away from the house and go back to the United States. And I think the trauma that I've seen in the house really got to me yesterday too. Um, so yeah, that was yesterday. Yesterday was the hardest day I've spent here. Today is the day before, it's July 1st. This is the day before my appointment. Okay. My grandma likes soccer and I think while watching soccer, we bonded and we started to talk more. And slowly I began to like ask questions about like, how does it feel that your daughters, that you haven't seen your daughters or how do you feel that I'm here? She certainly does miss us, but my grandma always returns to, but I understand why. I think my grandma probably thinks that we all left because she was a bad mom. And 
I think she's failed to move on from that stage of grief, grieving the people that she raised. In our family, she's the physical embodiment of what immigration does to a person and to a family. The day before my visa appointment, I didn't let myself think about my life in the United States. I didn't let myself think about what I would be leaving behind in the United States. I didn't let my mind go there because it would be too sad and too traumatic. And that's how I cope with things, just by ignoring them. I woke up at 5 a.m. I had put the outfit out last night. I was still freaking out and nervous. And then my grandpa went with me. He was wearing blue jeans and a white polo. That's what he chose this morning. It was my grandpa who accompanied me up to the Guatemala and Mexico border. That was in 1999. And he insisted that he walk me to the embassy. He knew that he wasn't going to be let in. And he has a cane now, but he insisted. We crossed the road, and he hugged me. And then I went through the security, because only the person whose appointment it is is allowed past security in the embassy. And then I went in, and I was by myself, and I saw him walk away on his cane. And it was the perfect, I don't know, closing to that chapter. And then I walk up. Well, she asked, was my name, where I lived in the United States, where I lived in El Salvador, where I was going to return to, and for what. And then she asked what my visa was about. And then she took a moment to go and ask her supervisor for something. And then she came back, and she said that I got approved. And then it was done. I haven't recorded in a while and I think it's because I feel a lot better after knowing that I will get that I got the visa um, but today I got notified that I could pick up my passport which I'm gonna go pick up tomorrow which made me get a flight and the cheapest flight is this Wednesday and I hugged my grandma today I told her that I was sad she said that she's going to be sad to see me leave. And then we hugged. She stopped stretching her arms out, pushing me away when I hugged her. Okay, I'll stop there. So I asked my grandpa how he feels about me leaving. And then he said that um, things are going to feel more lonely. There's a return to solitude. La soledad. 
pues el día que llegaste pues, para nosotros fue un gran día porque teníamos tiempo de no verte sí. y, y nos llevamos una sorpresa que ya no eras aquel niño chiquito ya eras ya sos un hombrecito ya she's like um, you're not that little boy that left now you're grown She's very happy that I got my papers. And then she also apologizes for not, as she described it, tending to me how she would have wanted to. And I said that she doesn't have to apologize for anything. She said she's going to be waiting next time that I go there. You leave a country trying to make a life of it here in order to send money over there. But then at the end of the day, after sacrifice and sacrifice in this other country, that does not treat you well. You're kind of faced with like, oh, did I make a wrong decision by leaving my family and the people that I love? Because look at the emotional and physical toll that my departure has caused. My entire family is facing that right now. And we don't know what that answer is. I want to go back to try to mend all those years that I couldn't go back and to show my grandma that we still do care and that I still care. That was The Return, produced by Sarah Cabedo for NPR's Latino USA with editors Sofia Poliza-Carr and Marlon Bishop. It won the 2019 Best Documentary Gold Award. One of our judges said, I can't remember the last time I heard something that transported me like this piece did. It was cinematic in quality, with complex characters that evolved throughout the piece to tell us a deeply personal and intimate story, a story that is very pertinent in our country right now. I found it heart-wrenchingly universal and familiar. We invited Sayre to talk with us about this beautiful story and his collaboration with Javier Zamora. Turns out that their work together started with a very unlikely discovery. One of the reasons that Javier and I got along so well the first time that we met is because he, I have como tu tattooed on my arm, and he has como tu tattooed on his um, ribs. So we have the same name of that same poem tattooed on our bodies. It, it seems like, you know, when you're working with a poet and a writer like Javier, it seems like your biggest job as a producer may almost be to get out of the way. Did you feel like that was true? Yeah, yeah. I really had confidence in Javier to sort of astutely 
witness and see and take in all of these experiences and all of these feelings and then be able to project those out again in a beautiful way because so much of his work is exactly that. And then my job as a producer was to sort of whittle it down into something that felt like it had rhythm and flow and uh, momentum. Um, And so it was a partnership. Before I got into radio, I was a writer and I was a poet. And I think we both had a similar way of approaching and thinking about um, the work because poetry is such a visual medium, I think, uh, as is podcasting in that you have to be able to describe and transmute so much with so little sort of real estate. And so when we were in conversation with each other, there was a lot of being able to pick up on the finer details and poetic details of particular moments of images and motifs in that way. One of the things among many, many things that I love about this piece is that the story kind of unfolds slowly and it has a little bit of a a languid quality to it. But at the same time, it never loses its sense of urgency. I think that's a really hard balance to achieve. I mean, were you aware of those two things and their interplay? Yeah, definitely. I have to give a shout out to my editor, Sophia Polisaka, who listened to this piece many, many, many times. And even though the sort of course of the trip and the story itself is pretty linear and chronological, it sort of comes in waves, right? Like in the way that we experience life, right? Like we're not just going through these moments and then looking back, we're often like experiencing and reflecting in those moments while we're still have all these other things happening around us. So like trying to really capture that sense of being there, but also sort of being in yourself and being internal and reflecting without slowing the story down so that you're just stuck in his head and kind of forget that where you are. Yeah. And then Javier did a did a really amazing job um, with very little direction, I think, in his audio diaries of sort of helping direct and give a real sense of um, the anxiety of returning to a place that you used to know but that now feels completely unfamiliar. I credit a lot of that to him and his sort of the, the strength of his voice. He was able to do that in a way that really just m- helped make everything flow. The distance traveled in this story, both literally and figuratively, is really vast. And it's just as bitter as it is sweet. Do you think it's representative, or in what way do you think it's representative of other immigrants' experience? I can say that I've definitely had folks reach out to me having heard the piece and said, like, yeah, this is what it feels like, or this is what it felt like for me. Throughout the process, I was reminded of what a privilege it is that I'm never going to have to think about potentially leaving everyone that I love and not coming back. Um, And so I can't speak to the immigrant experience as someone who has U.S. citizenship and has never had to deal with a large amount of those questions, but I can speak to the sort of feeling of returning to a place that feels completely different. Um, As someone who grew up in the Bay Area and has not returned for a very long time, you know, I, I, I could connect to Javier's experience of that very distinct kind of jolting that you go through when you think that you're going to go back and experience one thing, but instead what you experience is time and and the passing of time. And I think that's something that we've all experienced in one way or another, whether it's um, returning to our homelands or just seeing an old friend or a family member and realizing that, you know, while you were living your life in one place, the world was still spinning and things were still happening and and having to deal with what that really means for you and what the impact of that is on you, I think is something that 
um, that anyone, immigrant or not, can can really feel sort of um, reflected in. You know, the judges commented that part of what they love about the piece, uh, even though your voice isn't in it, is that they can hear that it's a piece produced by you. So I'm wondering if you can describe your quote-unquote voice as a producer, because I do think you have a real signature. Yeah. I'm really interested in sort of teasing out the cinematic and poetic qualities of life as it's lived and really picking up those moments and turning them into something that other people can listen to and feel as well. Um, And so that probably has a lot to do with my particular voice and style is like I like to dive into this sort of deep, murky, sentimental, emotional waters so that other people know it's safe to, to come into. You know, I think what, what what most interests me, and I think this is reflected in my style and voice, is really imagery and, like, motifs, both in sound and in the subject and the matter of the work. So, for example, like, in Javier's story, we, we begin with this, you know, this scene of his grandfather dropping him off um, in the bus and him waving goodbye, wearing this outfit— and then picking him up at the airport wearing that same outfit, and then leaving him at the embassy and crossing the road, waving goodbye to him wearing that same outfit. Um, that's what I, what I sort of mean when I'm talking about, like, the poetics, right? Like, I'm really interested in sort of, like, patterns and rhythms and um, motifs that naturally occur in our narratives in our lives, um, as opposed to trying to, like, project something onto them that, that might not be there. Life is really beautiful, and if you're not paying attention to the poetry of it, um, then you're missing out on so much. My job as a producer is to is to remind people that like life is poetic and beautiful, and that we need to pay attention sometimes to that too. Sarah Cavedo, winner of the 2019 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition. Best Documentary Gold Award for his story, The Return. This is the second year in a row that Sayre has won a Third Coast Award. Last year, he won the Director's Choice Award for his Spanish-language story, Espera. You can hear that story and all of the winners from 19 years of competition at thirdcoastfestival.org. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2019 Third Coast Festival broadcast, sharing the best documentaries of the year. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program was produced by Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. Third Coast's executive director is Shirley Alfaro. The artistic director is Maya Goldberg-Safer, and the program director is Emily Kennedy. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with support from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Agadino Foundation, the Menachi Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent nonprofit arts organization originally founded at WBEZ Chicago.